This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly of the Internet Law Center broadcasting live from our offices here in downtown Santa Monica. Please be seated. We've got a great show for you today. And our topic is going to be um, fixing America's broken campaign system. And our guest is a former chairwoman of the Federal Election Commission. And she returns. Um, she actually was on our show in 2012. Um, as the um, chair of the California Fair Political Practice Commission. And as we speak right now at 10 o'clock on the West Coast, students across the West Coast are leaving their classrooms to protest for 17 minutes in response to the Parkland shooting and to demand action on gun control, as they have done at 10, 10 o'clock across the country in the mountain zone, in the central zone, in the eastern zone, and I just applaud them for their bravery. And uh, as someone who knows victims of gun violence and particularly mass shootings, I know several people who have been victims. And I've been to two gun funerals this year. So I, I applaud them for their courage and for their idealism. And I, I think it plays into what we're going to be talking about today in terms of how Washington is, is gridlocked in part because of money. So... Um, Anne Ravel, um, are you with us? I am. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. And it's funny, I was thinking about uh, when you were on the show in 2012, and uh, the day before the show, um, I was down by the Georgetown waterfront, and I was watching a thunderstorm come in, and I, I took a picture of my smartphone, which at the time was a BlackBerry. And that that shows you how how long ago that was. Just the thought of that I was still using a BlackBerry back then, and the downpour was so hard 
that that little trackball on the BlackBerry no longer worked. <laughs> the, the water just got in there. Um, yeah. How was the picture? Uh, the picture came out nice. I mean, it was right on the, the Georgetown waterfront, so I actually caught the thunderstorm as it approached you know, towards um, Georgetown. But <laughs> something that I guess if you live in D.C., you're used to, um, those common downpours. But um, thank you for joining us again. And uh, so you just recently um, left as chair of the Federal Election Commission, and it's it was interesting. The Federal Election Commission was created in 1974. And just to put it in context, I looked up what was the most popular car at that time. It was the Pinto. And, and so you were running an, an organization that's rules and kind of mission were set during that era. And it's a very different era today. But why don't you tell us a little bit about what exactly the role of the FEC is? Uh the mission of the FEC is to ensure the integrity of the electoral process, uh, not with respect to voting itself, the, itself, but with regard to the money that is expended in politics, both as contributions and expenditures um, and issues of um, foreign money and the like. And primarily, it's a reporting agency. That is, the main uh, purpose is to require disclosure so that the public can understand uh, who's behind campaigns right. and can make thoughtful decisions based on you know their own views, depending on who it is that's contributing to those campaigns. Now. Um after the 2000 election and the dangling chads, there was this Help America Vote Act, and monies were given to help states improve their voting systems. Now that, and you said you, you do not help with voting them. So HAVA, HAVA is not within the purview of the FEC. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, that why why uh, was that act? Well, uh, it it was always established right after Watergate, as you, as you mentioned, in 1974, in order to deal with the issues that arose in Watergate. And those were that there was a lot of campaign money that was given in cash, in bags, right. taken to the White House. Uh, and that money was not only some of it foreign money, um, but it was obviously unaccounted for and beyond the amounts that, that were intended to be given for campaigns. And some of it was given by corporations, which it's illegal still for corporations to give directly to campaigns. And that money was used to pay off the burglars. And so after that um, uh, sort of anger that the public had for what occurred in Watergate, <coughs> it was recognized by Congress that there was really no agency to enforce the campaign finance laws, which were already in effect. Um, so all the things that happened during Watergate were illegal, but because there was no enforcement agency, uh, the Congress agreed 
on establishing the Federal Election Commission for that singular purpose. And the commission has six commissioners that are supposed to be evenly divided by the two parties. Well, it's um, that no more than three of one political party may be appointed. Um, So when I was on the commission, and still one of the commission's commissioners uh, is an independent, registered as an independent. And uh, there were then two Democrats, myself being one of them, and three Republicans. And... I was looking at so you left in in January of uh, two thousand um, thousand seventeen, and uh, with, yeah. with I left the, in March. In March two thousand seventeen, with so the exactly a, a, exactly about a year ago actually. And um, as your your term was set to expire, although I I looked at the other commissioners and some of them go back. Um, in terms of you know, their they ex, their term expired um, years and years ago. Right. Um, when when um, I left the commissioner uh, the commission, I was the only one still in a term. Everybody else has uh, been in expired terms and just keep holding over because. Uh, the Senate has not chosen to uh, confirm any other commissioners. So Stephen Walther, who you refer- he's the independent, um, his term yes. expired in April 30th, 2007. And right, he, and he, I, he's I still believe there. Ellen Weintraub's, yes, he is still there. And sorry to interrupt you. Oh, no. I, I believe Ellen, Ellen Weintraub is actually the longest serving commissioner, and she may have been on even longer than 2007. <laughs> it, it, is it is the reason why they don't find a replacement is because the, the, there's a difficult, because you were, um, your confirmation was pretty smooth, if I remember. Well, why is yes. it that they can't find a nominee to replace the people? I don't think it's that they can't find a nominee to replace people. I think it's that uh, it does not serve uh, Congress's real interest to um, push finding a replacement. And if you recall, the reason my nomination was uh, relatively smooth was because I was paired with a Republican, which is a common uh, way of uh, filling these positions. And so they know that uh, because the votes tend to be along party lines and because the commission requires four votes to do anything, um, they know that uh, the votes will cancel out the, right. the uh, each other, so they're fine with the way it is. In my view, they don't feel that there's any um, necessity after so many years of deadlock to change the uh, uh, com- composition of the commission. Now, uh, right around the time, and I'm trying to remember the exact date, um, but it, it, concurrent with the establishment of the FEC. 
uh, around then. You have the Supreme Court decision in Buckley v. Vallejo that upheld the campaign finance regime. And just as you were coming into office in, in Washington at the FEC, there had been Supreme Court decisions that dramatically altered, really, the scope of campaign finance law, most prominently being Citizens United, which, can you explain to us how what that meant and what how it affected your job? Yes. And, uh, Citizens United was decided in 2010 by the Supreme Court, and I came in in 2013. And when I came in to um, uh, the FEC, the FEC had not been able to um, regulate at all. Uh, they stalemated completely on regulations uh, related to Citizens United, which was a pretty groundbreaking change in campaign finance. What it did was to say that unions and corporations uh, could make unlimited expenditures um, for uh, candidates, but not directly to candidates. They had to be um, independent expenditures as long and as long as they were not coordinated with the candidate, um, they could um, contribute as much money as they wanted uh, to these organizations and then uh, the organizations that they were uh, giving the money to could make unlimited other expenditures. And a subsequent case, which is equally as important, called Speech Now, uh, this was extended and, and it essentially set up super PACs, which meant that um, individuals and corporations and others could give money to super PACs who could then unlimited amounts of money, and those super PACs could then give money to other organizations and ultimately to also to candidates in order to do independent expenditures. And, and the, at the core of those decisions are, are two premises, which I, I, I suspect you would dispute. And we're actually going to have, um, and there's an UCLA professor who has a book out now on the first point, is the extent to which corporations are people. And yes. and have free speech rights, um, and the second part is that um, speech extends to the amount of money you you can spend. That right. that spend the more you spend is just it it is an exercise of free speech, and and so by definition any limitation on spending is a restriction on speech. Right. I uh, question whether uh, corporations are people in the sense of having free speech rights. Um, I'm not um, convinced that the First Amendment uh, extends to the speech rights of corporations. With regard to the question of whether money um, facilitates speech, though, I'm I'm more understanding of that 
perspective, I, I really do believe that there is that relationship uh, that, you know, obviously money, money does allow for um, greater ability to get the message out about campaigns. And, and so how did these decisions alter the role of the FEC? What, what it changed was the need to determine whether these groups were in fact um, working independently or whether they were coordinating in their expenditures with the uh, candidates themselves. And it also changed the fact that there was then an enormous um, increase in money that was being um, routed through 501c4 organizations or business organizations such as the Chamber of Commerce and other such um, groups. And that money was then routed in other ways for political purposes. And the question is whether or not those organizations had to be considered political committees because of the amount of political activity they were engaged in. Um, And if they were considered political committees, then uh, they would have to register as political committees and disclose their donors. Uh, But what we saw at the FEC was a proliferation of these supposed social welfare organizations, 501c4s, that did not disclose their donors, and neither do the um, business groups. And we'll get to the social welfare organizations in a second, but it seems that part of the premise of Citizens United is that well, you guys will be do you know, excuse me, the, the, your, your former agency um, will will have disclosure and will know all this and have all this information and you know what's the harm as long as everyone's aware of what's going on. But it seems as it played out, that's a false premise. Right, and interestingly enough, um, Justice Kennedy, who wrote the Citizens United decision. Um, and is still a strong advocate of it and of uh, the uh, uh, First Amendment basis for his um, his decision. He had, was at Harvard a year and a half ago or two, and when he was asked about the disclosure aspect, uh, because in Citizens United they said, as you mentioned, no question, all this will be disclosed, and because of the internet, in fact, information is proliferating, so people will be fully informed, and therefore there can't be any corruption. Um, And Justice Kennedy admitted that it wasn't working out the way he thought it would. Mm -hmm. That's an understatement. Yeah, in in a major league way, and it seems that I don't know if that there that creates an opening for reconsideration of Citizens United, but I know there are a lot of people very unhappy with the decision. Um, right. Well, let me let me address that because that's sure. an interesting issue because a lot of people don't realize 
how Citizens United arose. And it came about because uh, there was a group that wanted to or had done a video about Hillary Clinton, and it was when she was running for uh, president in 2008. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to be able to distribute it to lots of different outlets during the time period there's a there's a rule about electioneering communications and if they are in a short period of time before either a primary or a general election then they need to be um, uh, they're considered to be um, direct advocacy for or against um, a candidate, and they therefore uh, wanted to be outside of any of those rules, uh, and that's why they sued. And when it got to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court started talking about them as a media company and whether they were exempted, and then they sent it back for further um uh, discussion and further briefing by the lawyers on the issues of corporate speech because this was a 501c4 that was um, making the film and um, there was never any evidence in the record about corruption and about what kind of corruption there might be from independent expenditures. And so all of the things that the court premised their decision on was made up out of whole cloth. They had no record on it. Interesting. And yeah, I recall that the, they had the re-argument, um, which right. I believe was triggered by Justice Alito. And you had, you had <coughs> excuse me, you had the ability to decide this narrowly. And I tend to agree that the, the this came from the McCain-Feingold campaign finance law that the restriction on you know, certain speech before the election really was violative of the First Amendment, and and so I, I wasn't surprised that was going to be struck down. What was surprising is when they used that as a platform to completely just kind of um, disable campaign finance laws right. with the decision they rendered. Well, they actually didn't strike down the um, the electioneering law. That still exists. Interesting. So what they did was they um, changed the premise that was never argued by um, Citizens United. Wow. And um, we're going we're going to take a short break when we come back. We're going to talk about um, what this has meant and some of the cases that you dealt with as the FEC. And then we'll, we'll talk more, a little bit about what to do with the online space um, as you, you tried to do while you were chair. Um, but we'll be back after these messages. You're listening to Cyberlaw and Business Report only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after the brief recess for our sponsors. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. 
With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. There are those who dedicate themselves to a sense of honor, to a life of courage, and a commitment to something greater than themselves. They have always defended this nation and each other. They still do. The few, the proud, the Marines. your teeth into 100% original programming. WebmasterRadio.fm And try our daily search cast. It's made fresh every day. WebmasterRadio.fm We're everywhere. The Web Marketing Association is now accepting entries for the 2018 International Web Award Competition. Web Marketing Award winners receive an image plaque, certificate of achievement, higher visibility for your company, valuable feedback from our expert judges, and links to your site from the highly ranked Web Award site. Visit www.webaward.org to nominate your company, site, or organization. Deadline for entries is May 31st, 2018. Go to www.webaward.org and sign up today. WebmasterRadio.fm we're everywhere. Find our shows on iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere you download your podcasts. Pick out some new favorite podcasts now. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back, and today is a National Pie Day in celebration of the fact that it is March 14th and uh, recognition of the all-important mathematical number pi. And there's actually a bar in San Francisco called the Pi Bar, and its happy hour starts at, you guessed it, 3.14 p.m. So if you're in San Francisco, you you have a place to celebrate. Um, we're, We're talking with Anne Ravel, former chair of the federal election commission and we, we definitely not going to be asking her about her thoughts on the, the, the new number of pi but um so we were talking about how citizens united changed the landscape of election law and well, campaign finance law and one thing you were talking about were the social service organizations uh, that were ostensibly uh, social service organizations and outside the reach of what you were doing, but they, in some cases, as your, your your report that you released as you exited um, the FEC, they would spend you know seventy, eighty, ninety percent of their money on campaign in, in, for campaigns, and and some even openly endorsed a camp candidate. Um, t- tell us about this. Yes, uh, under IRS rules, but also under FEC rules, they're a little bit different. But those social welfare organizations are supposed to be devoted um, in a majority of their activities in order to get the um, IRS benefits that they get. Uh, They're supposed to be devoted to social welfare issues. And that means, and it can mean, um, issue ads because obviously 
people who care about you know the environment or people who care about education might be spending money on ads, but those ads are about issues. But the problem with many ads that those organizations actually uh, devoted their uh, resources to were that they were clearly political. They were um, related to candidates um, that by either naming them or because they uh, uh, were so clearly uh, uh, referring to them um, in the advertisement that they were political ads either for or against candidates. And many of them we found uh, by investigation of the um, Office of General Counsel, as you said, were devoting probably, um, you know, over 90% or more of their money, some of them almost entirely, uh, to help a particular candidate. Um, and there was one where the uh, head of the 501c4 was actually seen on TV uh, the night of an election uh, for a Senate candidate, and uh, he was wearing a hat uh, for with this person's name, and he said, we did it, we, after the person had won at the victory party. And so um, those should have been considered political committees uh, and should have had to disclose information about their campaign contributions and where they came from and their expenditures. And um, yet, um, because of the stalemate at the FEC, uh, we were unable to uh, get a fourth vote to even investigate those committees. And you, you could it just because the, the Republicans were voting in block? Yes. And early on, the Republicans recognized that if they always voted as a block, that they would be able to assure that nothing could happen. And there was actually a, a NBC News um, investigation into this, and they determined from looking back at records that the block voted together 98% of the time. And generally, that was to not permit any investigation of any of the complaints that had, had been filed. And you, you released a report showing uh, that, one, the level of enforcement in terms of fines would drop dramatically during this period, as did, you know, when you have a deadlock, the, the commission's unable to act, and that the number of cases where the commission was basically stalled because of the deadlock in, increased, you know, I believe doubled or tripled. Yes, that's that's correct, and particularly on cases of significance. I mean, there are a lot of cases heard by the FEC that have to do with um, some accounting errors or um, local party committees that perhaps don't um, uh, report something 
that is uh, of uh, minor importance, but it's part of the law, those there was usually not a deadlock on. Uh, but on any matters that were of any significance, such as whether or not some of these committees that spent millions of dollars, some of them hundreds of millions, uh, were actually engaging in political activity, that was where the deadlocks occurred. And, and the importance of that is that, okay, we emerged into a new era. You know, we're past the Pinto era, even past the BlackBerry era. And you're seeing the importance of the Internet in the political process. You know, the Obama 2008 campaign demonstrated the power of the Internet to elect a candidate. And you actually warned and said it's time for a reexamination of our approach to the Internet, which had been exempted from disclosure rules. Um, and the response to that was no from the Republicans, and death threats from the public. Tell us about that. Yes. Well, this was in response to a complaint that had been filed about a 501c4 that aired an ad on YouTube. And it was a clear political ad, and they spent a lot of money on that. Um, but because the FEC regulation said um, if you place um, an ad or any other material on a platform that is um, not for a fee, then it's totally exempted from the internet. And of course, we know people put on uh, uh, videos on YouTube, now they put them on Facebook, um, and there's not necessarily a fee unless you're specifically paying for an ad, um, which we can get to because most of what's on is not paid for as an ad per se. Um, and so I wrote what I thought was a pretty innocuous um, statement saying, we know that this is absolutely no different from the advertising that occurs on television. And yet on television, there's a requirement that there be disclaimers. There's a requirement that there be disclosure. And on the internet, it's exempted and it right. makes little sense. And so this is something that we should talk about. And um, we should get together. And I had already planned an event in um, San Francisco about at Stanford about um, democracy and the Internet. And I said we should talk to technologists. We should talk to campaign finance experts. We should talk to academics and others to um, see what this evolving media is uh, going to do and what its impact will be on campaign finance law. My fellow commissioner, who I was, um, uh, who I came in with at the FEC, went on Fox News and twice in in a short period of time to say that I was attempting to censor the internet. Actually, he said I was censoring the internet and um, that I was like the Chinese censorship board. And then, of course, it, it 
catapults to the Breitbarts and the Dredges at the time and to local um, radio, conservative radio stations. And that um, gave rise to thousands of death threats, misogynist, you know, email, or mostly not emails, mostly Twitter, and I got letters. Uh, it was um, quite, quite astounding, the response. So to restate, when you asked for the FAC to consider what its role should be given the power of the internet, they responded by showing you the power of the internet yes. and and saying no. Exactly. They did. Um, and I actually went to speak to uh, uh, Lee Goodman, my fellow commissioner, and I said, you know, you're actually not telling the truth because I never even said that we should regulate anything. I just said we should talk about it. And he said, just talking about this at the commission is chilling of free speech. Wow. So are we, are we censoring people right now? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. If you're being censored, raise your hand. Uh, of course, yeah. this, this is radio. I won't know. But, uh -huh. uh, the, um, but it seems that... You, you, you hate to be right. You hate to be able to say, I told you so. But after 2016, now that position is seems to be in vogue, that there needs to be disclosures, except now the FEC is saying, yeah, that may be the case, but let's just not do it for this upcoming election. Mm -hmm. That's what they've said. Um, and I, I certainly hope that there are more concerned about what we saw happen in the 2016 election and that perhaps that'll motivate them to do something. Um, but whether whatever it is they do is going to be meaningful if they do anything at all is an open question. And wh what, do you, what do you think they'll likely do um, and what do you think they really should do? Right. I, what they've talked about is um, something similar to what they've already said in an um, advisory opinion uh, relating to a group that wanted to place some ads on Facebook. And the, this group, Take Back the Republic, set it up to um, try to force uh, a uh, decision by the FEC that there should be disclaimers on the ads because we also had given, uh, I wasn't there when they did this, but they had given an exemption to po clearly political ads uh, that are purchased on Facebook saying that they were small items and it was impracticable for them to to have to show who was behind the ad. You know, those things that you see on TV that have stand by your ad or that say this is brought to you by, you know, Citizens for Puppies or whatever. 
that's what they had exempted. And um, they, they, in an AO, which is an advisory opinion that's only applicable to the individuals who have asked for that opinion or to facts that are similar, um, they said, no, they should not be exempted from the disclaimer requirements. And I think uh, that that is going to be what they will do a rule on, will be on when uh, those um, disclaimers should appear on the face of advertisements on the Internet. Um, I don't think that's sufficient because, frankly, in 2018 or 2020, uh, the Russians are not going to be buying Facebook ads anymore. They're going to be spending those millions of dollars that they spent that, that Mueller uh, has identified to try to um, influence the U.S. election. They'll be spending those in more secure, circuitous ways, and they're not going to be buying ads with rubles anymore. They're going to be figuring out ways to do electioneering kinds of communications that are a little more nuanced um, and do them without purchasing ads. They'll do them by um, having Facebook pages that then they micro-target and send to others. So I, I, I don't think that that is going to be a resolution to the concerns that are really going to, to uh, be much more prevalent in future elections. Because it would seem that promoting, I hate the, the term fake news, but you know, promoting the conspiracy theories and all these other theories uh, and making stuff up about the candidates and trying to create division, that is not necessarily would, would be within the scope of the FEC, correct? Well, it just depends because, um, I mean, to go back to the uh, definition of electioneering communication, um, a lot of electioneering communications um, are clearly referencing a candidate or naming a candidate. For example, the ads or the, the communications that were not ads that said that, you know, Hillary Clinton killed babies and right. should go to the pizza parlor and, and uh, okay. shoot up the pizza parlor where, the, uh, um, where that, that was being hatched. I mean, that is not an ad, but that is clearly intended uh, as a political communication that um, influences the election. And it was clearly paid for. There's no question. There was a cost to produce it. Uh, there was a cost to promulgate it. Uh, there was a cost to micro-target it. So I, I think if you, uh, you know, if you um, it have regulations that address it, it, it certainly would come within the concepts of um, campaign finance law. And, and so you would want them to disclose who's funding that? Right. 
but I'm not, um, yes, I think that they should, but I don't think that's completely the answer either because um, the platforms themselves, all they can do is say who placed it on the platform. I don't believe that the platforms should be required to do any sleuthing to determine who's really behind it. Because as we know, I mean, if you read the very interesting Mueller indictment, they, had, they hired people to uh, do some of these communications and, and pretend to, uh, uh, or to be here and pretend to be Americans, or they hired Americans. To, to put some of these things into the into the uh, social media space, so those are not people who were really behind it. It was somebody else, and I don't think the platform should have the responsibility to make those decisions and make decisions about what's electioneering and what's not. That's the job of the FEC if they were to do their job and we're going to take a short break um we want to talk about the, the whole question of if they would do their job after these messages you're listening to cyber law and business report only at webmasterradio.fm stay tuned for more of the cyber law and business report after this brief recess for our sponsors all of your favorite webmasterradio.fm programs on air and on demand 24 7 Find our shows on iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere you download your podcasts. Add some podcasts to your playlist as part of a better profit margin. More refreshing talk radio on air and on demand 24-7. Only on webmasterradio.fm. We're everywhere. Looking for a better way to get more traffic and interaction to your Facebook page? Imagine Facebook interactivity on your page like you've never seen. Introducing your new Facebook marketing fix, So Social, the new and revolutionary way to easily manage and automate your Facebook contests and sweepstakes. Create a fun, easy-to-win contest by writing a simple Facebook post. Watch your post go more viral and generate loads of interaction. Track your traffic and generate email lists with ease. So Social is mobile-friendly and complies with Facebook terms of service. Let So Social give your Facebook page some flash today. Zoom over to zosocial.com. What is us? Us is a foundation. Us is the future. Us is a bond. But right now, that bond is fraying. And we need a place that could make it whole. From diabetes prevention to safety around water. The Y fills the gaps. And bridges our divides. But they can't do it without us. Donate today. Because where there's a Y, there's an us. Read by members of the Y. The Y for a better us. Your virtual webmaster frat house. Webmasterradio.fm. Hey, bring your togas. Webmasterradio.fm. Thanks for listening. Webmasterradio.fm. We're everywhere. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Only on Webmasterradio.fm. And we're back and just a... Word of in memoriam for Stephen Hawking, truly a remarkable human being, and also a, a 
another tribute to Heepthee Lee, um, the Vietnamese actress from the Oliver Stone movie, um, and uh, who died um, last year and uh, it was announced during the Oscars, and she's only 46 and left two children. So, but um, she was a great woman. Any event, um, we're, so we were talking with Anne Ravel about the FEC and the dysfunctions of the FEC. And you said, you know, if they would act. And it seems like that's the challenge, that um, getting the, the block to, to act um, when it seems that their, their main mission is really just to make the FEC ineffective. Yes, and there's an additional problem now because um, – I've been gone a year and my position has not been filled and the uh, commissioner Goodman who came in with me just recently left as well. So now there are only four members of the commission Um, and uh, the likelihood of uh, getting four votes to do anything in that composition is potentially even more difficult. Wow. And um, it's like an Agatha Christie thing, and then there were four. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so I guess in light of the, the current state of affairs where you, you have this foreign interference um, and this money just pouring in, I mean, light of Citizens United, are, are you hopeful? Are you pessimistic? I mean, what is your view of um, the state of American democracy today? Uh, well, I, I have to say when I um, go to speak uh, to groups, which I do fairly regularly, I start off by saying, I hope you're not expecting this to be a lot of fun <laughs> because uh, <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, I am somewhat pessimistic and I think some of that comes from having been in D.C. during a time where I saw that the, uh, the deadlocked uh, uh, nature of the FEC, that when I got there, I thought, oh, it's, it's not about party, it's about um, philosophy. And by the end, I determined that actually it has to do with party, it has to do with power, Uh, the money that is given in politics is so consequential in the policies that are enacted in this country and because of the divisions and the polarization, um, I just um, think that we're at a really, really... Um, dangerous time in our democracy and that we need to make some radical changes. People have to get more involved in their uh, community. They have to be more involved in political activity because only when more people are involved and vote will there be a balance between the groups who can um, ensure that public policy fits what their interests are and the interests of the American public. 
And so is it fair to, to recast that as saying, you know, the flood of money and the refusal to act on it is making America less democratic because the money drowns out the voices of the people you're saying who should get involved? Right. It has definitely drowned out those voices. And there is a, uh, a really important study uh, done by um, a Professor Gillens, it's G-I-L-E-N-S, uh, who has looked at all the federal policies, including law as well as agency policies, and seen that they essentially uh, favor the very wealthy or corporate interests and hardly at all for the interests of grassroots groups or individual Americans. So absolutely the only way to regain that power is for more people to become involved. And I would definitely second that. We only have a few minutes left. Um, is anything you want to let people know about what you're, what you're up to today at, you know, at Berkeley or uh, with New America? Uh, well, my New America uh, project, I'm a, a fellow at New America, and my interest is to look at civic engagement and to determine how to get people more uh, connected to their, to their uh, communities as well as ultimately more involved in the political process. Um, I'm teaching campaign finance at Berkeley, and I'm also involved in some projects relating to uh, the issues having to do with platforms and disinformation. Well, I want to thank you very much. It's been a great conversation to go over these very important issues, and I'm, we're glad to have you back after six years. And and thank you for the fight you have, you know, you've made in trying to bring awareness on this issue. Um, so, from there's more information on, on um, and Ravel on our um, blog and our show notes at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. Follow us on Twitter at cyberlaw. Radio and this, check out the Internet Law Center at internetlawcenter.net. Everyone have a great St. Patrick's Day, and we'll be back next week with a very important segment on a, a, a reporter who became a revenge porn victim. We'll have Darius Chisholm and Fifty Sage of Silence next week. So until then, have a great week, everyone. Go Friars, go Rams. Enjoy March Madness, and thanks again. Uh, and I appreciate you being here. Thank okay. you very much. Bye-bye. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.